Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, how are you doing? <laughs> it's a lot to start talking. You remembered how, didn't you? Um, all too quickly. Um, well, just think, you're going to be doing a lot more of it soon. And uh, you'll get back into the swing of things, unfortunately, <laughs> or fortunately. But there's a whole world and a whole life waiting for you as you leave the container and the, uh, the refuge of the retreat. And so um, the question might come to you, if you did touch any kind of wisdom at all, how do I lead my life now? How do I bring this into my life? How do I remember any kind of understandings or open-heartedness that I have touched here? It's a good question. And sometimes it seems so, um, so much of a stretch to go from the quiet of the retreat to somehow living a wise life. But I want you to know that what you're doing here absolutely affects the quality of your life. I completely believe that, and I've seen it many, many hundreds of that and hundreds and even thousands of people and certainly in my own life and perhaps you've seen it a bit in your life if you're new to it what you do here really counts this is a a very special training situation where you're just asked and invited to pay attention in each moment so you can see clearly and amazingly, in that process, as you just bring your intention to be here and open your, your mind and your heart, things start getting revealed. You start seeing the, the things that we've been talking about, how everything changes. You start seeing how, as you have a pleasant experience and try to hold on to it, whether it's... Uh, a sweet taste at the mealtime or a sweet meditation, that it's painful. Or when you run away from things, they follow you anyway. And maybe you even get a glimpse of that idea of self not being quite who you think you are, and the solidity dissolves. This training ground of just being mindful is a special situation that then needs to be translated into our uh, daily life, our daily and busy life. And there aren't the same supportive conditions to be that mindful, to just lift your foot and feel it going down, or to 
take your time and feel one breath after another because there's so many things that are happening. And so the practice takes on a, a different dimension than that microscopic mindfulness or that very refined awareness. And that's where the whole um, attitude of reflection, of wise reflection, comes into our practice. It's not only to be a good breath watcher. That's not what this practice is about. That can be very useful and a very good tool to start seeing clearly. But it's to develop some wisdom that then you can um, use to guide your life and to access when you get confused. So this is a training ground to know what it's like to actually live in truth, to live with authenticity and presence so that you can have that more available, so you know what it's like to be really in harmony with your being. And you can see when you're off or feel when you're off and come back through reflection, seeing what is true right now. What do I need right now to wake up or to be more connected? And this is not something that you can always get the answer in a book because life is much more creative than that. So we're constantly being given new circumstances to apply our practice. It's one of the things that really uh, hooked me on these teachings that the Buddha said, check it out for yourself, as perhaps you have heard his answer to the Kalamas who asked, who should we believe? So many teachers come through here and say the truth. And he says, you should decide, Kalamas, not by what you have heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not by reasoning or because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely, and certainly not out of respect for a teacher. When you would know, Kalamas, for yourselves that these things are unhealthy, these things, when entered upon and undertaken, incline toward harm and suffering, then you should reject them. And when you would know, Kalamas, for yourselves, that these things are healthy. These things, when entered upon and undertaken, inclined toward welfare and happiness. Then, having come to them, you should stay with them. So, it's a personal inquiry that we are invited to undertake in every moment. As we, we say the chants, I just thought of this as I was sitting here, you know, the chants that we do in the evening the ones that, that say uh, sanditiko, akaliko, ehipasiko, opanayiko. Well expounded is the Dharma to be seen here and now, open-handed, inviting one to come and see, leading inwards to the truth, to be seen by each wise person for themselves. Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. And as you see for yourself, you see how 
you're out of alignment with the truth all too easily over and over it's a very humbling experience there's a price to pay for starting to wake up and that is you see how much of the time you're asleep or how many of how many ways that you blow it or don't live up to your ideals that can be very humbling but actually it's really good news i think carol was was saying uh, last night it's really good news when you see that you've been living out of harmony because that's the first step to waking up then you're learning all the time and as long as you're learning and you're heading in that direction the process keeps on going this is a a passage that I I really love and read in uh, most every beginning course I teach autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson chapter one I walk down the street there's a deep hole in the sidewalk I fall in I'm lost I'm helpless it isn't my fault it takes forever to find a way out chapter two I walk down the same street there's a deep hole in the sidewalk I pretend I don't see it I fall in again I can't believe I'm in the same place but it isn't my fault it still takes a long time to get out chapter three I walk down the same street there's a deep hole in the sidewalk I see it is there I still fall in (laughs) it's a habit my eyes are open I know where I am it is my fault I get out immediately (laughs) chapter four I walk down the same street there's a deep hole in the sidewalk I walk around it chapter five I walk down another street (laughs) that is in essence the process of learning and waking up so every time you fall in a hole instead of feeling oh darn I did it again if you see that possibility of getting up and going another way there's nothing that's been lost when she says it is my fault it's not that you blame yourself it's just to see you've got a choice ah I can choose a different way so that's the the process of learning and it's an ongoing inquiry and an ongoing correction course you know they they say that uh, uh, in navigation when uh, either a ship or an airplane is going uh, is traveling and they're on autopilot there's there's a constant correction this way this way this way this way it's like riding a bicycle too a constant correction and so you keep on seeing where you are and seeing what is needed to stay on your course and what is needed is to have a course this is a very important place a very important piece if you want to get somewhere it's good to know where you want to get to and so that's where besides the bare attention of noticing what's happening in a very precise way the complement to that aspect of mindfulness practice is what's called clear comprehension what that is is having a bigger picture of where you are and where you want to go 
as, as Ramdas says, it's not enough to, to know you're lifting your foot and putting it down. It's good to know your zip code, too. You know? <laughs> it's good to know your context where you are and where you want to be. Uh, clear comprehension, I'll just mention briefly, has four components. Clear comprehension of purpose. Don't worry, this won't be a, a long list. Just mention clear comprehension of purpose, clear comprehension of suitability, of the domain of meditation, and clear comprehension of reality. And what, what I really want to speak to is this clear comprehension of purpose. That once you have a vision of what you want to create in your life, then everything else is held in that vision. It's very much like the, um, the second link in the Eightfold Path, which sometimes is called uh, right or wise thought, also called wise intention or wise aspiration. Having a clear goal and vision. This is not to abdicate a, um, a vision just by being so present that you forget about the future. Having a goal, the Buddha certainly had a goal that he did not let go of until he'd attained it. Having some kind of vision of what you want to create in your life is inspiring and gives us direction. And there might be variations for, for each of us. Sometimes, often for me, the, the goal is to um, to purify my heart, you know, to be as pure as I can and, and authentic as I can. At other times it's been to come to the deepest understanding I could. Other times it could be to see through suffering. It can change as you develop, but your purpose, speaking to your highest purpose, is what really gives meaning to your life. Now, along with having that vision, that clear comprehension of suitability means knowing the context that you're in and knowing how appropriate it is to, um, to act so that that purpose can be manifested. So, for instance, you know, suppose you're, um, you're getting onto a BART train, right? And you are uh, you're by the ticket. If you if you don't know if you're from out of town, BART is the Bay Area Rapid tra Transit, and you're at the the ticket uh, um, machine, where you know sometimes there can be a a whole lot of people, and you hear the train coming. You know that is not the time to be going reaching, <laughs> lifting, putting. You're going to feel the vibes around you. you know. That's the time to practice a bit quicker mindfulness. Yeah. Or if you're practicing right speech, you know, and somebody asks you, what do you think of my new outfit that I got? And you're not so taken by it, there might be another way than to say, that is disgusting. You, know. you might say, well, Interesting. <laughs> Not interesting. Uh, you can figure it out. 
anyway, there are ways. <laughs> there are ways to do it, you know, and you have to get a sense of what can be heard and what you're trying to accomplish. That is, what your intention is behind your actions. <clears throat> Sometimes it's not always clear what our intention is, and this is something that. Um, I think the meditation is a very powerful tool if we can learn to apply it in that we get better and better at listening, at listening really carefully. Just like we get better at feeling our sensations in our body or feeling what it is that we're feeling inside. Oh, this is really sadness. That's what's going on. Oh, this is happiness. How do you like that? I would have missed it. Oh, this is fear. And just calling it like it is, by doing this over the course of the the days and, and, and week or weeks, you get better and better at really listening inside to what is true. And as you cultivate that listening heart, you can start to listen to your higher wisdom as well. There's a place in all of us, I believe, that knows the truth and that also knows what's true in this moment. We usually believe all the thoughts that come through. We have a a sad thought, we start feeling sad. We have a scary thought, we start feeling scared. We have a happy thought, we start feeling happy. We have a confused thought, and we start feeling confused. And so mostly, most people are at the mercy of all the thoughts that come through, swept back and forth, tossed and turned by all of these thoughts. What we practice here is that listening heart that doesn't believe every thought that comes through, hopefully you've seen by now, they're completely out of your control, that doesn't necessarily take ownership for the thoughts that come through. I don't know who was mentioned here. Joseph Goldstein has this wonderful suggestion. If you really are troubled by your thoughts, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. you know? <laughs> they're just coming, they're popping through the screen. You know? but we take them to be real. As you practice not jumping onto each train of thought that comes through, you can start to discriminate a little bit more where that voice is coming from when you leave the retreat and when you're going through your daily life. Often the thoughts have a kind of jagged edge or there's some Uh, contracted wanting or fear or aversion. Some thoughts are coming from a deeper place of wisdom. The ones that are coming in with that jagged edge that say, you really should do this, or why did that SOB do that? that?" If you listen to the tone of the voice, that is the key right there. And when you feel there's a contraction and agitation, 
you don't have to believe that and you don't have to act on that thought. Other thoughts that are coming from a much deeper place that say, this feels right. This doesn't feel right. I don't know about this. That are supportive, that are, there's a, a certain quality of wisdom and depth in there. Those are the ones you can start to trust. You might have a very different content a day later or two days later, but all you can go by is what your highest truth and wisdom is right now. So starting to listen and discriminate, discern between the voices, is a real gift of practice. To listen inside. In the um, uh, Buddhist psychology, there's, uh, there are unwholesome states like greed and uh, anger and uh, you know all the the big ones you probably know them very well and there are some wholesome states loving kindness and equanimity and generosity those kinds of things two of the wholesome states they're classically um, called uh, hiri and otapam which in the English translation uh, through Victorian language have come to be known as moral shame and moral dread. Those are <laughs> not my favorite translations. But what moral shame is, what Hiri is, is this place inside of us that knows when something is off. And we feel shame at the thought of, of doing something. Moral dread is the fear that other people will know that we've done it. (laughs) And really what those two together are, are what we call conscience. And isn't it amazing that we are, that we have that capacity to know, to be able to feel when something is off and when it's not. You know that feeling when you're really acting in harmony and acting skillfully. It's one of my favorite phrases from the teachings. The Buddha calls it the bliss of blamelessness. Isn't that a great one? The bliss of blamelessness. And if you can start to listen to see what is, what is this action going to feel like before you do it, What's it going to feel like in, in a week or six months from now? Will I feel good about it? Will I feel yucky about it? You know, how many times have we all had to learn the lesson, you know, the third or fourth or tenth or thousandth time, you know, oh, that's a dumb thing to do. <laughs> but sooner or later, you start to get it hopefully sooner than later. And if you listen carefully and use that as a guideline, there's a place inside of you that knows. What's helpful in this listening exercise is to have a clear understanding of what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. Because sometimes we don't realize we take in messages that we 
measure our happiness or our suffering by, we say, oh, this will lead to happiness. This is what I've been told will lead to happiness. This is, uh, I'll share with you an ad that was given to me a number of years ago. Some of you might have heard me share this. This is called the gold shivers. Okay, this, this is one of the many, many messages that we get bombarded with throughout our day, let alone our life. It's a two-page ad. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. <laughs> Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. And then, what is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. <laughs> From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. <laughs> Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. <laughs> the only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. <laughs> Very smart people are paid lots of really good money to create things like that, that ignite your senses, and that say, that's going to make me happy. And we buy into it either by wanting to get an object or wanting to measure up to our, our understanding of what success is. I'll, I'll read to you another thing. I just got emailed by two different people in the last uh, couple of weeks, so that's a message, right? And it's a, it's a great story. The American investment banker was at the pier of a small coastal Mexican village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked. Inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna. The American complimented the Mexican on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took him to catch them. The Mexican replied, only a little while. The American then asked, why didn't he stay out longer and catch more fish? The Mexican said he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. The American asked, but what do you do with the rest of your time? The Mexican fisherman said, I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, take siesta with my wife Maria, stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my amigos. I have a full and busy life, senor. The American scoffed. I am a Harvard MBA, and I could help you. You should spend more time fishing, and with the proceeds buy a bigger boat, and with the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually, you would have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you would sell directly to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You would control the product, processing and distribution. You would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City, then Los Angeles, and eventually New York City where you will run your expanding enterprise. The Mexican fisherman asked, but senor, how long will all this take? To which the American replied, 15 to 20 years. But what then, senor? 
the American laughed and said, aha, that's the best part. When the time is right, you will announce your company on the stock exchange and sell your company stock to the public and become very rich. You would make millions. Millions, senor? Then what? The American said, then you would retire. Move to a small coastal fishing village <laughs> where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, and take siesta with your wife, stroll to the village in the evenings where you could sip wine and play your guitar with your amigos. What ideas do we have about what is the cause of happiness? What will make us truly happy? Well, here's what it is said in these teachings. The cause of unhappiness, of suffering, is acting out of grasping, out of aversion, and out of confusion. Those are the sources of suffering and unwholesome karma. The causes of happiness are acting out of non-greed, non-grasping, or generosity, acting out of non-hatred, non-aversion, or kindness, and acting out of non-delusion, non-confusion, or clarity, wisdom. That's it. Those are the, cor- the sources of happiness. The Dalai Lama, in his, uh, in his book, The Art of Happiness, is, uh, which is a really lovely book, he talks about the difference between happiness and pleasure. What we think will lead to happiness is actually often very short-lived, and there's no end to that hunger. Because we get it for a moment, we say, ah, that felt really good. But what is feeling good is that that desire has ended. But we get tricked into thinking, oh, if I just create another one and have that fleeting gratification, We don't think in terms like that, but we say, ah, another one might do it, and then another one, and another one. And we think if we put those desires and their gratification close enough together so that there's no gaps, then we'll be happy. (laughs) But it's a losing battle. What he said was the source of real happiness was inner contentment, is inner contentment when there is a peace that's not wanting anything more, the highest happiness is peace. And what this really requires is learning the power of delayed gratification. You know, it's, it's so different than when we're little kids and we, we are you know, wanting more and more and more and more and our parents are teaching, no, just take what you got right now. No, Johnny, you can't have your third ice cream cone. You know? And learning that and getting socialized and you know, learning to, uh, to have some impulse control, it's not so different than as we grow up seeing the power of delayed gratification 
for what really makes us happy, it means not going for those quick hits right away. And one could say that the spiritual journey is about going for the highest happiness, and that means letting go of our need to get all those little quick hits along the way. And the interesting thing is, as you go for the highest happiness, all the other happiness, happinesses are experienced. That's just the way it works. So, can we practice some restraint that, as we see, you're sitting on the cushion and you can't have all the things that come through your mind and you say, boy, wouldn't it be great if... And then you get distracted and after a while the sitting ends and you didn't get it and you're still alive. (laughs) Oh, okay, I didn't have to have that desire. It came and it went. Oh, here it is again. I can feel that, I can understand the nature of desire and not give in to it again. You can have some choice when you are clear the consequences of your actions. Oh, what is this going to feel like if I act on it? So knowing that happiness comes out of that non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, then it's a matter of understanding how karma actually works in each moment. Karma, which I'm sure you all know the word, simply means action. And it's that actions have consequences. And what karma means is that in every moment you are creating a certain reality. I think Guy mentioned this uh, um, yesterday or the day before, that when you act from an unwholesome um, place, it doesn't feel good in that moment, right? The likelihood of a similar situation arising and you responding the same way is greater. The result that comes back is usually not very pleasant. Suppose you are um, just spilling your anger everywhere. What kind of energy comes back to you? And also, after you've done an action, either through speech or through, through activity, when you reflect back on it, it doesn't feel good. So th- there's both an instant karma and a future karma. On the other hand, when you act with a wholesome intention that is out of uh, kindness or generosity or clarity, it feels good in the moment. The likelihood of that response occurring in a similar situation is much greater. You are practicing that habit. The result comes back to you Suppose you act with generosity and that becomes something that you practice. How are you around somebody who's very generous? For me, I want to be generous back. It's almost almost impossible to to not be as generous as I can. So that comes back to you. And also when you look back, when you reflect back, there's a joy that comes from it. 
So in every single moment, you've got a choice what you are creating in your life. What is called, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls nourishing healthy seeds. Because every act, you are planting a seed that bears fruit. I've um, recently been reading a, a book that I love uh, that I wanted to share with you since I'm talking a little bit about happiness and some of the, um, the wisdom from this book. is called How We Choose to Be Happy uh, by Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. And what these, these folks did, by the way, uh, they're gonna, uh, we arranged for them to, to lead a, a day long at Spirit Rock in December uh, for this. Uh, they interviewed, they go around to corporations and do team building, and they, they noticed that in uh, all their work, there are a few people who just were naturally happy. Right? And it just continually you know, intrigued them. Just some people have that spirit. So they decided to find out what is ticking for happy people. So they decided to identify as many happy people, what they call extremely happy people, as they could. Uh, and they would ask people they knew, who's the happiest person you know? And then they'd, they'd get the person's name, they'd check that person out, and then they'd ask all a, a number of other people from their life. So it wasn't just, oh, they're happy in, at work and they're miserable at home or with their friends. You know? And they did some extensive testing to see these people really were happy. And when they identified a few hundred people, they said, okay, what do these people have in common? And that's what the book is, The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People. This is not a Buddhist list, but actually there's a lot of, there's a lot of Buddha Dharma. It's the same thing. And what they found, the first of these choices is the intention to be happy. Most of us, or I shouldn't say most, but many of us don't even realize that as an intention. Maybe kind of, oh yeah, it would be nice if I would be happy. But deciding to be happy is quite a different thing. And as they interviewed these people, they saw it wasn't just people who had good circumstances. Oh, it's easy to be happy when you've got good circumstances. But they looked at these people's lives who had often a lot of tragedy and suffering and somehow still either learned from that or chose to be happy. I want to read one, uh, one account that really was striking. This woman, Adele. Okay. Adele showed us early on that happy people don't necessarily live charmed lives. In 1991, she experienced an unusually tragic set of losses. Her life unraveled as the losses began to pile up. In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground, leaving me with nothing. No clothes, photos, furniture. No material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman at the same time that my restaurant went bankrupt. 
My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. <laughs> Everything in Adele's life disappeared, and she had to make decisions about how to go on. But without establishing some form of intention, she would be immobilized. What was her intention? Having lost everything, Adele had many intentions to establish. She explored the most fundamental of them. Would she live or die? I had nothing, she says. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this for, my, for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see that this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. And then she, she says later on, about how she, she went through tremendous grief. It doesn't happen overnight. I, in, 1999, in 1991, yeah, I didn't have anything to look at except myself. I remember fighting the urge to shut down emotionally. But at the time, my emotions seemed to be all I had. I forced myself to keep facing the pain. I cried a lot. I never withheld a single feeling. Any time I felt empty, I meditated. When I felt unsure, I called a friend to talk about it. I joined a support group. And she talks about all the different things that she did. And then something important happened. These tidal waves of intense emotion came up against the reality of my loss. As they smashed together, the grief began to dissolve into something more manageable. This was the point when I began to turn my attention away from what no longer was, what I had lost, to what could be. And it goes on to talk about how she then flourished in this whole other way. Lots of stories, whether there were people who were um, in deep um, grief or illness or circumstances that seem beyond their control, you can choose to be happy. And one of the main, one of the, the next point that they make, the next choice that they make, is not being a victim of circumstance, what they call accountability, that you can affect your life. And the more you're a victim, the more helpless you seem, and it seems, the more you say, okay, what can I do right now to turn this around or to use this? And what they call recasting, to learn from the lessons and to appreciate what's here. 
the greater that possibility of happiness. We can learn, we can learn to incorporate any tragedy, any difficulty as part of our awakening. The Dalai Lama has this beautiful uh, uh, passage in, in his autobiography where he talks about how he used to be quite short-tempered and he could use the excuse that the people from his area in Tibet were quite short-tempered. He said, I used to be quite short-tempered, but with training and practice, I've learned another way. Now, if he was short-tempered and learned, just, he has a great uh, image, by the way. He says, if you need to evaluate your progress look over a five or ten year period instead of how it's been going since last week. It's the long-range plan and it requires a lot of patience because this is a process and a practice of purification. It takes a while. One of the aspects of right effort that um, has not been talked about that I find very uplifting and inspiring what are called, well, it's actually one of four aspects of right effort. <laughs> Try to get around not seeing a list, but it's very simple. It's <laughs> abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen discouraging unwholesome states that haven't arisen, developing wholesome states that haven't yet arisen, like practicing loving kindness or when you're not feeling it, and increasing or strengthening wholesome states that have arisen. And I want to just mention a moment, that last one, enhancing or strengthening wholesome states that have arisen. What that means is when you happen to be feeling really whole and happy or you're in the middle of something very skillful, the more you can be present for it, the greater the strengthening of that state. It's like you are nourishing that healthy seed that you're planting. Suppose you have a a spontaneous feeling of goodwill towards somebody. Be present for it. Feel how good it feels. If you're having a joy in life, let yourself experience the joy. It's not cheating to experience joy. Even though we talk a lot about suffering, suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. Joy is a factor of enlightenment. And so when you feel it, to really let yourself feel it. It's one of the, um, uh, one of the lines I love from the suttas, from, uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha, he's talking about generosity as, as one example of what he calls equipment of mind, uh, good, good qualities. And he says, thinking I'm generous, suppose you're in the middle of a generous act, thinking I'm generous, the practitioner gladdens the heart, delights the heart, gains inspiration in the Dharma. Now, what does that mean? 
if you have a generous gesture coming through you, do you say, oh, aren't I generous? That's not what he means. That's just taking, taking that sense of self and feeling conceited about it and creating more of a sense of solidity. But rather when you say, ah, how wonderful it feels to be generous. You don't have to take ownership of that. You can just appreciate how good it feels when that gesture has come through you and honor it and just feel the, the, the beauty of it. In that way, you don't, you're not taking ownership of it and it's very skillful. He says one should think, ah, I'm generous. Oh, how good it feels. And gain inspiration and have the heart and the, and the, the mind be gladdened and delighted with it. And your acts have rippling effects. Very definitely, you affect your environment. Every act that you have of generosity or kindness just puts that much more of that energy out into the world and it touches others. Uh, A a story that I've I've mentioned before, but it's relevant to this retreat um, because you've been on the receiving end of it, is... um, uh, when I was on the receiving end of a, uh, an act of generosity, this was 20 years ago. I was on a three-month course in 1979. And I was, some people have heard this story, that I was, I was doing the, the dishes and uh, doing the pots, which in those days you had to sign up for. I spoke to two pot washers at, uh, uh, during the, the silence being unbroken and they, being, yeah, uh, being broken. And these pot washers have started a new trend. They just got such joy at washing pots. Uh, it was really great to, to hear. Anyway, I wasn't joyful in washing the pots, and I felt, oh, I have all these pots to do. And I was, was given, uh, uh, in, in the middle of feeling sorry for myself, this, the manager came out of the, the staff room at, at IMS and saw me working diligently, and what he thought was diligently, and he had this piece of something wrapped in some foil and he said here this is for you and I quickly finished my pot washing did it even more diligently opened it up and there was this big piece of cheesecake right and it was with glaze and nuts and it was <laughs> I said, wow you know but you kind of get generous as you do this practice and besides it was a pretty big piece of cake so I just broke it into a few different pieces and I put it in a few different pieces of uh, a few different people's bowls you know that I just felt connected with and I watched them at tea time as each person came in and you know saw their jaw drop (laughs) and one person broke their piece in half and and put it in somebody else's bowl Howie Cohn was the the last of the uh, uh, got that that last piece (laughs) and I ate my piece of cheesecake very mindfully. It took about a minute and a half. You know. <laughs> it's delicious. And it was gone. But what was interesting is that 20 years later, I feel connected to five other people through one piece of cheesecake. So that, that, that generosity of sharing is just the currency of, of our caring. And why I tell this story particularly here is you know you had cheesecake yesterday? That was from 
somebody who had sat a retreat recently who knew that uh, we were, we were going to be at this retreat who had heard that story and decided to bake uh, 15 cheesecakes because that story touched her. So you got... <laughs> now it keeps on going on. Right? And that's how it works. Your acts have rippling effects. So pass it on. The Buddha says, the perfume of sandalwood, rose bay, or jasmine cannot travel against the wind, but the fragrance of virtue travels even against the wind as far as the ends of the world. Like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashioned from your life as many good deeds. And the greatest spirit of generosity that I can think of is our practice, is our Dharma practice. What a gift we are giving, not only to ourselves, but to the world. Just by cultivating some more kindness and wisdom in ourselves, there's a little bit more in the world. And it affects everybody around, just like the cheesecake, only more profoundly. I, I read that, that uh, piece the other night. I just want to read a line or two again. It's so powerful to practice, not just for yourself, but for everyone. We are not practicing for ourselves alone, says Nyosho Kempo, since everyone is involved. The natural outflow of so-called solitary meditation or prayer is the spontaneous benefit for others, like the rays of a sun, which sooner or later spontaneously reach out. Everything depends on one's motivation. If we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified and purified within ourselves and be beneficial to others through any and every form of contact with that good heart which we strive to embody. What a beautiful way to practice, to give our heart to this cultivation. It's a gift to others. Nelson Mandela from his inaugural. You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So, listening more and more carefully to that place that we could call our Buddha knowing, that wise place that allows that understanding to be expressed, 
listening to what inspires us, to what really makes us happy. Not the, the quick hit of pleasure, but the deeper kind of happiness. Listening to what our Dharma is. And then we see that we have our own unique gift, our own unique expression from this larger mystery, this larger vastness. Martha Graham, there is a vitality, a life force that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. Your task is not to compare this expression with others, but to keep the channel open. So, this is what we are called to do, to keep the channel open, to find out our own wisdom, our own beauty, and to share it with others. And it takes a lot of patience, a lot of compassion for all the ways we get lost. But what else is there to do when you think about it? Practice more greed, hatred, and delusion? (laughs) Why not just take it one step at a time and do the best you can with as wise and loving a heart as you can in this moment? So, you can sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on May 22, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.